0: Dear Father, your faithfulness, Father, is such an encouragement. Men and women will change their minds and go back on their word and forget what they've promised, and Father, you will not. And your faithfulness to open up this building every year, to give us an opportunity to gather, to study, year after year. This is now, Father, our our 10th year here on Wednesday nights. And what a great testimony that is to your faithfulness. and. And to the degree to which you want your children to know you through your word, and uh, father, we are the fortunate the blessed who have come here today among all who might have been brought here you you brought us, and so we thank you for that as well we may we may have a lot on our minds, we have a long day uh, behind us, and perhaps we're already ready to to, to call it a day and and uh, and just rest and and that may leave us weary, but I pray, Father, we'd have a, a little bit of attention left for you and for your word, and that we would be focused on it. For there could not be a book in the in your canon, Father, more important than this one, for for showing your sovereignty, your power, your faithfulness. And we, we want to see it all. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity. Um, Father, I ask your blessing on the teacher that I would have a, uh, a correct understanding of what I teach, that I would have uh, the proper words to use that please you and that as I teach, Father, the truth of it would be self-evident not because I present it as such but because the Spirit is in this room teaching. Let that be the effect and the, the testimony of all who have come here today. We look forward to what you have for us in this book, Father. Bring us not only through today but in all the weeks to come. Bring us through this whole book so that we'll see the full counsel of it and share it with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, welcome to our study of Daniel. The book of Daniel is the foremost book of prophecy in the Old Testament. What the book of Revelation is to the New Testament canon, the book of Daniel is to the Old Testament canon. Because the prophecies of Daniel reveal more future events in exceptional detail and in greater concentration than any other book of the Bible. Daniel explains how God's plan for Israel... His plan for Gentile nations and His plan for His own coming kingdom all unite in history. In fact, without the book of Daniel, it would be literally impossible to understand the rest of biblical prophecy, much less God's program for history. And therefore, a proper understanding of all prophecy hinges on us getting a proper understanding of this one book, the book of Daniel. And it's particularly important. The book is particularly important because... It has this comprehensive unveiling of the political future of the major powers on earth. It accurately predicts the rise and fall of world empires spanning thousands of years of human history. In fact, going all the way until Christ's second coming. And in effect, afterward as well, looking at the kingdom. Its predictions about coming world empires were so accurate, in fact, that biblical critics in the 18th century concluded that the book of Daniel must be a forgery. Those men, and these are men who denied the existence of any prophecy in the Bible, they deny that God gives prophecy at all, they proposed that Daniel was written during the Maccabean period, years after the events in the book had already come to pass. That was their way of explaining how Daniel could have been so accurate about things that supposedly were yet to come. But the book's undeniable historical accuracy, friends, is not not a function of some human hoax. It's the power and wisdom of God revealed through the prophet, obviously. Because when your source happens to also be the author of human history, well, then it would make sense that they would be perfect in the prediction, right? So the Lord wanted Daniel to relay his perfect insight to us so that we might understand God's purposes in appointing that rise and fall of nations. And so in that sense, you can look at this book a little bit like a road map of history. It explains historical signposts and intersections of various cultures and people. It explains them, though, in terms of purpose. Not simply they will be, but why they will be. And that's the key issue in the book, the explaining of why God is moving these chess pieces, if you will, on the board of history. And as I said earlier, Daniel is important to understanding other books of the Bible. It is, in my terminology, it is the decoder ring for understanding Revelation. And in that way, that it's not coincidence that Daniel and Revelation are the only two books of apocalyptic literature in the Bible. Daniel explains many critical events of end times that are not addressed in other books of the Bible, which explains why Daniel is the most often quoted Old Testament book of prophecy in the New Testament. And Daniel contains more fulfilled prophecies than any other book of the Bible. So Daniel is a book of unique importance in the scriptures. As you start to think about what it contains, you can start to think in terms of twos. The book can be divided into twos on several different levels. First, the book is divided in two languages. Many of you may know this. Chapters two through seven were originally written in Aramaic, which was the common language of the Near East of the Babylonian Empire. Chapters one and then eight through twelve were written in Hebrew, which is, of course, the language of the Jewish people. And Daniel's choice to use those two different languages also tells us that this book was written to two different audiences, another division you can make of audiences. Because at the time of Daniel's writing, Judah and Daniel himself were living in captivity in Babylon. And while they lived there, the Jewish people learned how to speak, read, and write Aramaic in addition to their native Hebrew. But the Babylonians, they, they could only understand their own language, that of Aramaic. Furthermore, Daniel is the only Jewish prophet in all the Old Testament who delivered his prophecies to a Gentile employer rather than directly to the Jewish people. He didn't go walking around saying, Thus saith the Lord. He gave these things to Babylon. And therefore, we conclude that the chapters written in Aramaic were intended by Daniel to be understood both by the Jew, who could understand that language, and by the Babylonian, who could only understand that language. And likewise, the chapters written in Hebrew were written only to the Jewish people. Chapter 1 today is in Hebrew. This is a chapter then that Daniel wrote expecting that his brethren would understand it, but it wasn't necessary or important that the Babylonians follow it. Another way it can be divided. This book has two fundamental messages. First, Daniel explains God's future plan for Israel in delivering the promised kingdom to them, but only after a period of judgment. And then secondly... Daniel demonstrates how God's people are to live in the present time in faith, even as they await the kingdom. So though it's a book of prophecy, don't overlook the fact that there are numbers of chapters in this book in which the main focus of the chapter is, how do we do what we're to do now while we know God is at work doing bigger things for our future? And then one last way to divide it. It has two themes. The first theme is the sovereignty of God. People have observed this over and over again as they study this book. And it's evidenced by the way we'll see God telling us in advance how he is going to orchestrate the rise and fall of earthly powers according to a timetable that he has set. God ultimately will triumph over evil, but for a time it's going to appear, to at least those who were living in those days, that evil has the upper hand. So God's sovereignty is going to be evident in the fact that he predicts even the down moments, even the bad things that are said to happen for Jews or for the world in general. But it's all leading somewhere good, which can keep our perspective on his sovereignty. The second theme, God's grace for his people as evidenced by his response to their prayers and his faithfulness to his promises. Because at various points in this book, God is going to be seen to respond to prayer in a very remarkable way, which just reminds us that as big as God is, and even as he is busy writing human history, he's not too busy to give attention to our concerns individually. It's a nice balance in this book. All right, now normally at this point, I'd spend even more time than I already have. Introducing the study with more background and history and the author and his circumstances and so on Usually that helps me. I don't know if it helps you But as it turns out in this case the opening chapter of daniel is an introduction of those very same things So I don't even have to do it. I just have to let the book speak for itself So let's start there chapter 1 verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 7 In the third year of the reign of jehoiakim king of judah nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, Youths and in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence and every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability in serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Let's start where Daniel starts. He begins by dating the time of his writing of these events and of the book itself. He does it in a very precise manner. Daniel, as you know, as I said, is a book of prophecy, and that means it's anticipating some very important events that are coming in the future. Prophets earned their credibility based on the accuracy of the things that they predicted. And Daniel, his predictions being so specific and so important, it's critically important that Daniel be able to demonstrate to us that all of his writing took place prior to all of those events happening he wants us to know that his ability to foresee these things was not a parlor trick and it wasn't some hoax he had these visions out of god's sovereign will to grant them to him and he had them in advance so he establishes up front that he wrote these things before they came to pass and jewish prophets when they wrote they dated by the king that was in power at the time the jewish king that was ruling and daniel dates his story to the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim King of Judah, the southern nation of Israel. Now, by this point in history, the northern kingdom was gone. So all we have in the land is Judah, Benjamin, and Levi living in that area that we call Judah. And the king was Jehoiakim. Now, in that year, in this third year, a Babylonian prince named Nebuchadnezzar led the army of his father, Nebuchadnezzar, against two enemies of Babylon, Assyria and Egypt. So Assyria had been the dominant power in the Near East for centuries at this point, And the Assyrian kingdom stretched from Mesopotamia, today we'd say Iraq, all the way to the Arabian desert of present-day Egypt. Assyria had conquered the great power of Egypt at an earlier point. They'd made the pharaoh and the nation of Egypt their vassal. So Egypt towed the line behind Assyria. They had also been the ones to conquer that northern kingdom of Israel and scatter the ten tribes that were living there. They had done that in an earlier day. But now, at this point, in the third year of King Jehoiakim, Babylon was gaining power. They were challenging Assyria for world supremacy. And just five years earlier than this moment, five years earlier than the moment Daniel's talking about, in 609 B.C., Assyria and Egypt had fought together to retake the Assyrian capital, which was Haran. You'll see that on your map. So the Assyrian capital was in Haran at the time. And Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar's authority, under his leadership of the army, had gone in and captured Assyrian's capital city. And that's not good. When your capital city falls to some other power, that's a bad sign. So back in 609... Assyria with Egypt allied together, had tried to retake that city. And as the Egyptian army traveled north from Egypt, up the Viamar, which is the way by the sea, through Judah, on their way up to meet the Assyrians at Haran, well, they suddenly found their path blocked as they were going through Judah. King Josiah, a forerunner to King Jehoiakim, King Josiah had massed his forces at Megiddo, which is in the Jezreel Valley, northern Israel. He was there to attack and destroy the Egyptian army that was marching through his land on the way up to Haran. His thinking was, Assyria is in decline. Egypt has been weakened from years of Assyrian domination. So Josiah thought, well, here's our chance to finally free Judah from the Egyptian oppressors who had been in control for so many years and win their freedom. Now, as the Egyptians and the Judeans confronted one another in that valley, the Pharaoh Necho, who was leading his army, he issues a warning to Josiah, telling him, don't interfere. We have that moment captured in Second Chronicles 35. Let me just read you a passage, Second Chronicles thirty-five twenty. After all this, when Josiah had set the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to make war at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to engage him. But Necho sent messengers to him, saying, What have we to do with each other, O King Judah? I am not coming against you today, but because the house with which I am at war. And God has ordered me to hurry. Stop for your own sake from interfering with God, who is with me, so that he will not destroy you. However, Josiah would not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to make war with him. Nor did he listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to make war on the plain of Megiddo. The archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in the second chariot which he had and brought him to Jerusalem where he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Second Chronicles explains that the Egyptian pharaoh Necho warned Josiah, Go home and don't get involved. And interestingly, Necho tells Josiah that the Lord himself was directing him, that Necho somehow knew this, And furthermore, Necho says to Josiah, God is telling you not to get involved. And if you do, God's going to destroy you for getting involved in this battle. It was very interesting, isn't it, that you would see a Jewish king receiving a word from Israel's God from the mouth of a Gentile enemy, from the Pharaoh. God was at work bringing nations even then against one another for his own purposes in the world and what he's doing is preparing to raise up Babylon as the chief nation on earth and to use Babylon ultimately to discipline Judah by taking them captive and in this moment notice God graciously allowed Josiah the opportunity to step back from acting outside God's will but regrettably Josiah would not listen to the mouth of God referring to what was said by Necho. And so he decides to attack, contrary to God's views, and as a result, God lets Josiah die in battle. And then the Egyptian army just keeps going. They go north into a battle against the Babylonians in Haran. The Assyrians and Necho, the Egyptians, failed to recapture Haran in 609 B.C. So after an attempt of several months, Necho and his army just left and went back home. And as they come back through Judah now, passing back the same way they came, In those three months he was in battle, the people of Israel had appointed Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, to be his successor as king. But of course, Egypt's not going to allow Judah to make their own decisions about such things. They're under Egyptian authority. So Necho replaces Jehoahaz with another brother, Jehoiakim, on the throne since he was willing to submit to Egyptian authority. So Jehoiakim is the guy that Daniel just mentioned. So he's the guy that Egypt put in power after Josiah dies in battle. Jehoiakim becomes king in 608 B.C. He rules three years under that Egyptian authority until 605 B.C. And in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar arrives, now leading the Babylon army, into Jerusalem, having conquered Assyria at Carchemish. And when he arrives, he takes control of Judah. He robs the temple of some of its artifacts. And as Daniel pointed out, Nebuchadnezzar took captive some of the Jewish nobles and royalty. Nebuchadnezzar's policy was to bring the best of whatever kingdom he conquered into his own land to strengthen his court and strengthen his nation. And in this case, he's removing nobles from Israel's upper class to ensure not only the loyalty of the king that he's leaving in power, he leaves Jehoiakim in power at this point, but also because he wants to rob Israel of its strength and bring that into Babylon. One of the nobles taken at that time, as we've read, is the young boy named Daniel. Notice how Daniel describes these nobles. Verse 4. He uses the word youths. Or if you're from New York, youths. The word in Hebrew for youth here describes a really young boy, maybe barely a teenager. And in verse 5, Daniel says he was to be trained for three years before entering the king's service. That gives us an interesting detail because Plato who wrote about the Persians and their practices, he says that members of the Persian court, like those we're talking about here, would have begun their training at age 14, and they continued until age 17, three years again, at which point they assumed their role in the court. So if Plato's history is accurate, then it would seem Daniel was probably of age 14, entering the program that was expected of someone at his age, and he would go for three years. These young men were the best, the brightest of Israel, which is why Nebuchadnezzar wanted them, obviously. They were physically strong, they were intelligent, they were discerning, and therefore they'd be appropriate for royal service. You wonder if Daniel included those details as a self-serving little aside on his way through the story. I don't think so, of course. He's just explaining why he had his opportunity to accomplish amazing things on behalf of the Lord in Babylon. It's one of the great ironies of this book that Daniel was virtually unknown when he lived in Israel. And yet he becomes one of the greatest men when he goes to Israel's enemy, Babylon. His rise to prominence then was the result of God elevating him. We knew that, of course. But, friends, don't overlook the fact that his personal traits were an essential aspect of his story. Daniel was a man of character and intelligence and discernment. And those traits became tools in God's hand to accomplish great things for his glory. Now, at this point, some of you, if you're... Uh, Bible students who've, who've done your homework, you might be thinking of a place elsewhere in the Bible at this point, perhaps 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul talks about how the Lord uses weak things of the world so that he might be seen to be strong when he accomplishes things. And so we might wonder if Daniel's an exception to that rule. But don't misunderstand Paul's teaching on that point. God does choose to work through the weak and the inconspicuous, but he elevates men and women of strong character. He accomplishes the impossible with the least, But he favors those who are faithful, devoted, and spiritually mature. So don't confuse God's preference for humility or obscurity as indifference to our spiritual strength. Daniel may have been a child, but he was a spiritual giant among men. And if we have a desire to be useful to God, then we can't ignore the importance of being ready for those opportunities to be prepared in your character and in your knowledge of Scripture and in your spiritual maturity. Those things are not what Paul means when he says he takes the weak. He's speaking from what worldly perspectives are for you and I. That we're not noble, that we're not rich, that we don't have human power. Yes, but God wants men and women who reflect well upon him in their character and in these other traits. Finally, notice how Daniel's position in the court of Israel's enemy Babylon parallels experiences you may remember from men like Joseph or Moses. Remember, like Daniel, those guys were... Instruments in God's hands to rescue God's people out of an enemy, a strong enemy. And they were useful in the way that they were used precisely because they had men. Of, they were men of character as well. And they came to prominence in a court of a foreign king Joseph did with Pharaoh. So obviously, so did Moses. And even before that moment, they spent years learning the culture and the politics of those regimes that they were a part of. It reminds us that God has placed us all in a certain place and in a certain culture at a certain time for a reason so that we might understand it and work well within it. I was just referring to that a moment ago talking about our conference theme this year that you're not where you are by chance and the experiences that you develop in the place God has put you are to be useful in some way presumably to support ministry and so the ministry we have for the people of God to the glory of God will always be a function of who we are in our character in our background, our experiences and where we've been placed. Those things have been matched for God's purpose. At the end of verse 4, Daniel says, The king, one of these boys, trained in the literature and in the language of the Chaldeans. The word Chaldean here, it just refers to Babylonian culture. It can also, though, be used to refer specifically to the profession of an astrologer or a magician, as we sometimes say, a magi. In Babylon, And the magicians of Babylon were much more than you and I might think of when we hear that word today. They're not tricksters. They're not just sorcerers. An astrologer, that was a name given to someone who was the keeper of all science and ancient knowledge in their day. They were the scientists and the librarians of their day. The Chaldean would be an expert in natural science to the extent that they understood it, which is quite well, actually. Mathematics, medicine, history, and of course, astrology. So in verse 4, Daniel is using the word Chaldean here to refer both to a general knowledge of the culture, but also it means to learn the profession of a magician. Daniel's going to become an expert in all of these things. And eventually, and we'll talk more about this in a future week, Daniel eventually becomes the leader of the Magi in Babylon, which ties him very interestingly to the wise men who come to visit Christ. And we'll talk about that later. Among those taken with him, as you heard, were three other men, three other boys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Josephus, the ancient historian of the Jewish people, reported that Daniel and these three boys were all relatives of the same family, of Zedekiah, who was the final king of Judah. As was customary, you see the boys' names get changed to Aramaic names, Uh, that's Very typical. A new name had a way of conveying that you were now a part of this new culture. In their cases, it was very important to change their names because all four of them had names that incorporated the name of the God of Israel in their name. The word El in Hebrew is uh, the name of God. El means God. And Aya is short for Yahweh. So Daniel, you have El at the end of his name, Azariah, you have I at the end of his name. So they all have in their names a testimony to a god that is not a Babylonian god. So their names get changed. Daniel becomes Belshazzar. Belshazzar could mean a couple different things. I'm going to put my bet on wife of the chief Babylonian god, Marduk. So he was named after her. Shadrach may mean, I am of little account. Not sure why that would be his name. And Abednego may mean servant of and Nabo was a god of Babylon. Changing a person's name meant, among other things, that they were no longer going to have any ties to their past. It was like cutting them off from the past. It's like when you adopt a child from another culture, perhaps an orphan, and you bring them into your family. Usually, if they had any name at all, they'll be given a new name to join the family. It's a way of just cutting ties with the past and identifying with your new future. And, of course, that's what they want for these boys, where they want these boys to see themselves as Babylonian from this point forward. Interestingly, changing the names of these guys isn't going to give them that self-identity because Jewish people have never completely assimilated into Gentile culture. And that's because, of course, the Lord is preserving a people that he said he would preserve. And Daniel and his friends are going to be very typical in that regard. They're going to be Jews living in Babylon. They're not Babylonians. Finally, in verse 5, the king wanted to ensure that these men had access to the best in the land to strengthen them for studies and service. So Nebuchadnezzar commanded the boys to be fed from the king's table which friends that meant first class dining for these boys and to us that sounds like a pretty good deal right it seems to us that the lord is already at work blessing daniel by allowing him to receive this choice menu even though he's in captivity right at least least things are looking up from that point of view but the problem is this is not a good situation if you are a jew living under the law under the dietary restrictions of the covenant Daniel and his friends are obligated by the Old Covenant to observe certain dietary restrictions, especially regarding the preparation and types of meat that they can eat, the kind of drinks that are served. And in this culture, it would have been highly unlikely that they're going to be served kosher meat. The the word we use today would be kosher. And furthermore, it was very likely that the meat would have been sacrificed to a Babylonian god beforehand anyway, which would have meant that the Jews couldn't eat it. And so Daniel and his friends are in this difficult situation in which they're being given the best But they're going to have to turn it down. That's a delicate thing to do. And under any circumstances, much less to the king who has made you captive and who has all power over you. So if Daniel and his friends are going to partake of the king's table, then they would have to do so in violation of God's law. So it's really about honoring a king or honoring God. This sets up the first conflict between Daniel's convictions and the king that he now serves. Let's look at what happens. Verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. This confrontation begins just like all such Confrontations begin in the heart of the believer. Daniel knew what was coming. He understood the choices. He understood the likely consequences of his choices. So he had a private decision to make even before the situation was made known to anyone else. And that decision was, in verse 8, Daniel resolves to do the right thing so that means daniel considered all the possibilities of what would happen if he ate and what would happen if he didn't eat he knew eating would mean disobeying god disobeying god's covenant inviting god's displeasure on the other hand daniel knew that refusing to eat would have meant crossing the most powerful man on earth risking his own life risking the commander's life etc and he had those two options and with those two options on the table the choice was obvious daniel chose to side with god rather than the king And it says in verse 8, "...he made up his mind not to defile himself." The Hebrew word for made up, or you could say set, uh, it means to fix or to determine something and then to hold on to it in a sure way, in a fixed way. So Daniel is determined, he has set his mind to remain ceremonially obedient, ceremonially clean, no matter what comes. But friends, here's the other half of the story that you don't want to overlook, because at this point we all understand that. We all get it. Sometimes we've got to stand our line, we've got to take what comes. we're just going to have to be for God, and whatever comes may come, right? We'll we steal ourselves for the impending disaster that will have to hit us because we stood for God. We just have martyr written all over our forehead. Daniel didn't do that. No yeah, he stood for what was right, but what else did he do? Daniel isn't interested in being a martyr. So he tries to avoid the earthly consequences in an appropriate way. So Daniel says to the commander, Hey, do you mind if we just don't eat it? Because it would defile us, and if you can give us permission, we'd appreciate that. Isn't that remarkable? I just don't think a lot of us give enough thought to that reality. That in other words, we know that God may be prepared at times to cause us to enter into martyrdom, whether it's for our life or something less. Maybe we lose a job, maybe we lose a friend because of our stand and some concern of God. We all understand that. We're sort of ready for those moments. But how many of us in those situations might consider the option that Daniel selected here? Which is to say, to give consideration to the possibility that God may have a solution so that we don't have to play the martyr even as we seek to obey him. That he might give us another option. The word of God commands us to give preference to God's commands over the precept of men. But the word does not mandate that we walk into persecution unless it's unavoidable. Daniel's discernment protected him. His intelligence helped him here. So that even as he had resolved to defy the king's order, he's still searching for a way to please the king, even in the midst of his need to do this certain thing. It's the essence of Paul's command in Romans, when he says in Romans twelve seventeen to respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It's this yearning to try to figure out a way to stay at peace, but yet never compromising on what you know God has asked you to do. And there's often a way there. Not always, but often. And Daniel thinks he has a way to do it. He approaches the commander and he says, If my friends and I could avoid defiling ourselves by eating only vegetables, would you let us do this for a short time as a test? Now, vegetables are generally safe for a Jew to eat. They're not routinely sacrificed to idols. There's not generally a worry about kosherness when it comes to vegetables. So that would be a safe play for Daniel. And you might assume that a steward working for the king under these circumstances is not going to give a lot of attention to this kind of a request. Why bother? Why not just tell the guy, no, shut up and eat what we give you. By the way, we took you captive. You don't have any boat here. Why wouldn't he just say that? Well, notice verse 9. The Lord's already working behind the scenes to support Daniel in his obedience. So the Lord granted Daniel compassion, it says, in the sight of the commander. In other words, he softens the heart of this guy. So that contrary to the guy's nature, he's interested in seeing it from Daniel's perspective and trying to work it out. But there's still one impediment, of course. The guy's worried for his own head. This idea of God working behind the scenes for the benefit of those who obey him. That's going to be a theme that recurs in this book. You see the Lord here working through the agency of earthly authority to ensure that Daniel's stand for righteousness is successful. That's going to be a theme that you're going to see coming up in the book more than once. Now, this would be a tempting place, by the way, for a preacher. To say, see what happens? If you just stand for what's good, God's always going to find a way to take you out of harm's way. Which would be complete nonsense, right? Tell the martyrs that. So I can't say what God is going to do for sure in every situation, but we can take comfort in saying at least what he did for Daniel. Because this example reinforces what we were talking about a moment earlier when I said that when you take a stand for God's word, you don't have to assume persecution is the inevitable outcome. It'll happen sometimes. And in fact, in the book of Daniel, it comes to Daniel eventually as well. But other times, the Lord, by His grace, He may choose to just let us step out from underneath that hatred and persecution, wherever it comes from, and reward us, if you want to think of it in those terms, bless us for having stood by Him under difficult circumstances. We simply, friends, we simply do the right thing and trust Him for whatever the outcome is, knowing that sometimes it may be that we see ourselves scot-free from any negative consequences, and other times they come on us. In both cases, glorify the Lord whether he chooses to make you one or the other. The commander then moved by God to consider the request for sympathy. His main wonder is what's going to happen when the king notices that you're starting to decline in health because you're not eating well. It's going to come back on me. That diet is going to, I'm going to be held accountable for your malnutrition. Because a vegetarian diet, though it's very popular today, I know, it has to be carefully planned if you're going to sustain health over the long term. And in this day, I think that would have been especially true because there wasn't going to be the same variety, perhaps, of vegetables. And if the meat was a part of the meal, then I doubt the vegetables were substantial. They were probably just a side dish. So by getting only vegetables, he may not have had the kind of strength-inducing diet that was expected. So the commander just imagines the worst here, right? After a month or two of nothing but these weak vegetables, you're going to look gaunt. And it's going to be obvious to the king that what happened to these guys? and he's going to turn to the commander and say, what did you do, right? And I think his concern is actually valid. A month or two probably would have shown something in the effect it had on the the body of these boys, and it probably would have resulted in him losing his head. So it's not unrealistic. Truth be told, though, I don't think the king really cared what Daniel ate. What the king cares about, what Nebuchadnezzar would have cared about, was do the men, do the boys, have strength, and are they progressing in their training? Is everything taken care of for them? And if he can do it with vegetables only, I don't think the king would care one bit. It's only about the outcome. So the commander's dilemma then is, how do I keep the king happy while trying to satisfy Daniel's request? And Daniel's test is intended to put aside the concerns of the commander. He says, look, if I just eat for 10 days vegetables and water, and you examine my appearance and compare us to these other youths in the same program who are eating the meat and all the rest, after 10 days, you'll see. You should be able to see a difference. And what's nice about this is 10 days is short enough that the king would have been unlikely to pick up on any differences should there have been any. It would have been fairly small differences at that point, but the commander who's carefully inspecting these boys, he could have seen it. So it gives him a chance to know if this is going to be a problem before it becomes a problem. The choice of 10 days, though, is more than just coincidence. Uh, That number is meaningful. The number 10 in Scripture represents testimony, as you may know. So I think the Lord inspired Daniel's choice of 10 days as a testimony for the Lord's intervention his coming intervention here to sustain the strength of these kids it suggests that the Lord has planned to ensure their health regardless of whatever comes and Daniel it would seem must have had some kind of expectation that the Lord was prepared to sustain them in this way which is why he suggested the test in the first place remember it is likely that a diet of vegetables only would have weakened them so why was Daniel so sure that it wouldn't it would seem as though he was already seeing past his circumstances trusting God was at work in this and perhaps God had revealed that to him and now the results, not going to be a surprise, verse 15. At the end of ten days, their parents seemed better. And they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine, which they were to drink, and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Miraculously, the boys don't just hold their own. They actually are better looking than their peers who continue to eat the regular diet. I'm sure there's some modern parable in that for us as well, right? Notice he has peers in captivity. Some of those boys were from Judah, not mentioned in the names of what we have. There's others from Judah, apparently. And if they are not in this gang of four eating vegetables only, then it means that these others have compromised on their convictions, That reminds us that even as Daniel obeyed and his friends followed him in following the Lord, they represented not all, maybe only a minority of Israel, of those who were in captivity. Because the people of God are not uniformly obedient. We all know that. Based on the history of Scripture, it's safe to assume that only a minority, for the most part, seek to serve God in faithfulness and without compromise. But it's that group that we're called to emulate. And as a result of this outcome, the commander saw no reason to suspend his support for Daniel, so he just keeps giving him vegetables. But the Hebrew word there for vegetables, in verse 16, that's the only time that Hebrew word appears in the entire Old Testament. It literally means seed grown, as from the ground, in other words. So Daniel ate only things of the ground. Daniel goes on to say in verse 17 that the Lord gave him grace not only for his physical strength, but it was matched by God's grace for his spiritual Strength. He grew in his knowledge and his intelligence as he was trained. And it's interesting, God was preparing these young men for great things, right? But it all began with Daniel taking a step of obedience in the face of opposition. Where would all of this have gone if Daniel had agreed to eat those things that were given to him, right? So Daniel's training program began as a consequence of his convictions to be obedient to God. And I, that is often the way God works, that the order of those two events is always in that order. That God's willingness to work with us and train us up and use us in mighty ways is a consequence of our decision to be obedient. It is not the means to becoming obedient. Certainly we are sanctified by His work in our lives, but those opportunities come to those whose character and and decision-making has put them in a position to want the things God wants. So while Daniel's training program may have originated in the mind of some pagan idol worshiper in Babylon, the truth is, this is God's training program. He's put Daniel in it. He sent him off to school in Babylon, essentially, for purposes that God has in that situation. One last observation on that is another parallel. Paul and Moses now would be my parallels. Paul was prepared, as you might remember, in great rabbinical training of his day under Gamaliel, as he reports. And yet Paul, when he was Saul anyway lacked the heart to know God truly until God chose to harness Paul's intellect and his training and use it for the sake of the gospel. And many have remarked about the fact that Paul couldn't have been better trained for what he had to go do for the gospel once God turned his heart. Remember that God may put us in circumstances that don't look very godly or even use things in our lives that aren't godly at all, but he's using them in constructive ways. Here, Daniel is being prepared to serve the living God, but he's being trained at the hands of a pagan court. So maybe you should ask yourself, how's the Lord preparing you to serve him through the everyday influences of the fallen, lost world that you inhabit? What person who annoys you? What job or task that you hate doing? What uh, oppressor or persecutor in your life is the person God has put there to make something better in your life? Who is the person or thing that you hate the most and yet doesn't seem to want to go away? I wonder if that's not your Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 18, then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Meshael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. This brings us to the end of the chapter, and Daniel's introduction comes to an end with Daniel effectively graduating his academy of Babylonian training. Now he's around 17, we would guess. And as a 17-year-old, he and his friends are being presented now before the king as ready for service in the court. They have had all their training, and then we're told there were none equal to them among those who were in the program. Once again, you can see God here using weak things, but he is not beyond making weak things mighty when it suits his purpose. And Daniel has become mighty in knowledge, mighty in discernment and wisdom, mighty in humility and obedience. By the way, those aren't contrary qualities. You you can be mighty in knowledge, mighty in discernment and wisdom, and yet also be mighty in humility and mighty in obedience. In fact, I would say those are essential complements for anyone who wants to serve the Lord to his or her fullest. Daniel's companions are also judged superior, and I suspect probably because of their companionship with Daniel, or at least I would assume, And as the king consults these young men, he finds them 10 times, I love that, 10 times better than the other Chaldeans in service. Now, it seems unlikely that the king could have quantified the superiority of Daniel's service so precisely as to be 10x. So I have to conclude again that the number 10 here is being selected because it's another reference to testimony. That is, Daniel's excellence in his service to this pagan king, to his own enemy, has become a part of his testimony and... Therefore, God's testimony through him. Just as Paul reminds us, we're to do all that we do in excellence as for the Lord. It must be sometimes that you would serve in the wrong places to the people you don't prefer. Moments in life that you think God couldn't certainly have wanted us to endure. They don't seem to be the kind of thing that God would want for us. Or, or are they? Maybe those are the moments when we're supposed to show ourselves obedience so that we can give a testimony in the places that need it most. Daniel is an example of what can come of our obedience to the Lord's Word even in the face of persecution. His knowledge and his wisdom were a testimony of how the Lord helps you rise to meet difficult challenges and to help you make excellence your goal in those situations. His strength and his fortitude remind you that faith lived out calls for courage. But courage is the result of trusting in a sovereign God who has greater power than anyone around you. As Paul says in Romans 8, If God is for us, who can be against us? And at the same time, Daniel sits here in captivity. Never forget that as you study through this book and you see all these things happening. He is a captive this whole time. If Daniel had been given the chance to go home freely, I might have assumed he'd do it. Certainly in a young age he would have. But he's not. He's held in captivity, taken from his home, taken from his family, forced to serve a foreign king, which reminds us that God's choice may be for us to serve him for a long time, under difficult circumstances. You know, Daniel didn't assume that just because he was in Babylon, well, then the God of Israel is no longer on the throne, and somehow everything's gone wrong in my life, and now I must retrace my steps to figure out where I upset God and had Him punish me in these terrible ways. But the truth is, a sovereign God has been working two kings earlier, To bring about the circumstances to allow Nebuchadnezzar to roll into town and take Daniel captive and bring him back and put him through three years of training so that Daniel could excel for the Lord in this pagan place with dreams and visions and the rest. That was God's will. And the last verse of this chapter essentially echoes or reinforces that thought. Daniel ends by saying he continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Consider that for a second. Daniel served the king of Babylon until Babylon was conquered by Cyrus of Persia in 538 B.C., the first year of Cyrus now becoming king. His work then as a minister in this court for a foreign king, as a captive of that king, lasted 65 years, which made Daniel about 90 years old by the time he was finally released from this service. We have no record, by the way, of Daniel ever returning to Judah with the exiles, probably because of his age. So, despite his faithfulness, despite his character, it was God's choice to leave Daniel in exile his whole life. That is the important footnote to chapter 1. So, Daniel, from top to bottom in this chapter, is exemplary. He's demonstrated to have God's grace and God's favor. He's been made a strong and wise person in this land, and he's respected by the king, the most powerful man on earth. But God never took the next step and said, Well done, my faithful servant. You can go home now. You cannot measure God's faithfulness by your circumstances. God often places us in difficult places expressly so that we can see his faithfulness at work. And he leaves us there for a long time sometimes so that we can demonstrate our faithfulness to him and our trust in him. Remember that as you confront difficult circumstances, the fact that they exist does not mean God isn't God. The test is whether you still serve God in every situation, trusting that he has good purposes for why he is doing what he is doing and why we are where we are. I think if we're too busy looking for how to get out of those circumstances, we miss the chance to serve him in the midst of them. Daniel is constantly seen to serve God where he was placed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for a start to our study, but it's only a start. There's so much here to learn, Father. I pray that you would keep us on track as we've endeavored to go. How ironic I would set a plan for a class, Father, that's focused on the sovereignty and and will that you exert on nations. But I do pray, Father, that you would grace us with a, a plan that lets us finish on time. And yet, Father, reveal so much along the way for us. And bring others, if it be your will, so that we can continue to gather in your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.